Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is another half an hour of science on your radio, in your ear holes. Uh, my name is Chris, and this week I am going to be looking at some oddities, some curiosities in the naming of biological species. So it's a little bit of a story involving uh, taxonomy, linguistics, and David Bowie. So, yeah, stay tuned for that one. You managed to get Bowie in there. No, well, no, I talk about Bowie, but he's not actually on the. I'm not going to be talking to David Bowie. No. Oh, that's so let you down. But yeah, he will be mentioned. He the will, taxonomy of David Bowie. That's right. We're going to try and classify him at last. Claire, well, what have you got today? I'm going to be talking about um, some carnivorous plants. One of my favourite topics: pitcher plants and their amazing relationships that they have with other species. So there are some. There's some very interesting new research. Um, that's just come out in the last week. So I'm going to talk all about that. All the things that they eat. All the things that they eat and all the things that help them eat the other things. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Symbiotic relationships. Ooh. Excellent. Speaking of, I don't know if that makes any sense. Manisha. Hi. What have you got for us today? I'm actually going to be um, interviewing Kathleen Garland, who works at the Weisbecker Lab at UQ, and she's going to be telling us all about bandicoots and their forelimbs. So that should be something to look forward to. Excellent. Uh, more marsupials. That's what we need on this show. All right. Stay tuned for that. Okay, so recently I went to see the new David Bowie exhibition that's on at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image in Melbourne. Wow. Really interesting. Yeah, not very science-y, I suppose, as you can probably imagine. Um, more music-y and, and arty than science. A little bit of space travel, though, I'm sure. Oh, there was some space travel in there, yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, his song was played by the BBC during the, the moon landing. So, oh, cool. Because they happened to release the song Space Oddity in July 1969. Oh. There's a bit of trivia for you. Oh, that's wonderful. It is good to know. But um, one thing that caught my eye was like at the very end of it, they had a sort of display of pictures of things, of people and things that are influenced by David Bowie. And there was a picture of a spider in there, which led me to go and look at what is this spider doing in here? And it turns out that it is, the, it is a huntsman spider from Southeast Asia, and it has got the scientific name Heteropoda David Bowie. <gasps> really? Yes. What a, what a lucky spider. It, well, it was apparently it was named because it probably, mm. I mean, it's it's kind of got orangey hair and it's got <laughs> kind of a big red stripe down its, down its middle. It's very distinctive kind of look. And also and the spiders of Mars. That's true. Mars? Ziggy Stardust oh, and the Spiders of Mars, Mars yeah. yeah. So, yeah, there's a few different kind of, there's a few things connected. It's mm. basically in honour of David Bowie. And people do this sort of thing. They name species after famous people or people they like. This often happens. But you aren't allowed to name a species after yourself if you were the Why? one. Why? I was just That's about to say it. that I want one named after me. Well, yeah, you're not allowed to. There are some rules. And yes, the rules are set up by the um, well, there's the International Code of Zoological Nomenclature, 
mm. or ICZN, or it's also the International Code of Botanical Nomenclature for Plants as well. And they have some slightly different rules, but they're pretty similar. And you're right. The person who discovers it, they can name it after following certain rules. They often use Latin, which is why we call these Latin names, really, generally. They're also known as the binomial name because the name of the species given includes the genus first, which is kind of the larger group, and then the, the species, that's the specific species in there. So, um, you know, humans, of course, are homo sapiens, homo, the genus, genus, and sapiens, the species. But yeah, people can name it after famous people or can name it after relatives as well. You can do that. There is uh, an example that I found is a dinosaur that was named by paleontologists Tom and Patricia, Patricia Rich. They named it after their daughter, Lee Ellen. So it's Lee Ellenosaura, and it's oh, one of the few man. dinosaurs that has a female name. So as in mostly Saurus, this one is Saura. So. If you guys discover something, will you name it after me? I'm just putting that out there. Please. You're on the top of my list. Thanks. Yeah, you're certainly the first person to request that on my <laughs> list. Now, one, there was one rule that I have, though, that is that uh, no zoologist should propose a name that, to his knowledge, ooh, his, says, gives offence on any grounds. So you're not supposed to give them offensive names. It's sort but of like when you name children. This, this is true. This is true. But um, people have in the past tried to name things to insult other people. There's a couple of examples from a 19th century zoologist who worked in Victoria. He um he collected things for the Museum of Victoria back in the in the 19th century. He's William Blandowski, bit of a, a character he was. He wore a cape. He travelled around the countryside finding things. Uh, he made a few enemies around the place, oh, and really? so he named a couple of fish after people he didn't like. There was <laughs> one that he described as uh, having. It was a slippery fish that lives in the mud and had a, a flat sloping forehead. He named Yuck. it after um, the Reverend Dr. John Ignatius Bleedsdale. Hang on. Ignatius Bleedsdale? Yeah. Oh, as if that man wouldn't have been teased <laughs> enough. See, now he has getting... a slippery fish yeah. named yeah, after him. He definitely got bit up. There was another one that was uh, named after Dr. Richard Eads, who was a, a doctor, as the name suggests. He also later became mayor of Melbourne. And this one, he called it Senua Eadsii. And he described it as a fish easily recognised by its low forehead, big belly and sharp spine. This guy was so mean. Do you yeah. think he was only discovering or deliberately discovering fish, ugly fish. that ugly were fish. ugly and, I don't know, that looked like people, people. he knew <laughs> and didn't like? And Possibly. all the nice-looking fish was like, oh, someone else can discover them. This is actually taking me back to uh, Stu's story on the hagfish. And... Yeah, that's, that yeah, was another was attractive fish. Who was that named after, know. really? Oof. Well, look, you'd be glad to know that the, this Senua Eadzii, that name didn't stick because, like, one of the rules, obviously, with the naming is that the first person to describe it essentially gets to name it. And, and they can shift around depending on their classification. So it had previously been observed by Major Mitchell on the Barwon River. Um, so now it is known by the scientific name Bidianus Bidianus after the local Aboriginal name from the Barwon River. It's actually the silver perch. Yeah, so it's Bidianus Bidianus. Cool. Now, you may notice with the name Bidianus Bidianus, it's got the name <laughs> repeated. Now, in biology and taxonomy, this is known as a tautonym, where an animal has its, has its name repeated. I say an animal because the botanical rules, you're not supposed to give a plant a repeated name. I think there are some old ones that have a repeated name, but oh. for plants, you're not supposed to give them a repeated name. Like but Rattus you, Rattus. Rattus Rattus, the black rat. Yeah, exactly right. Um, there's also Vulpus Vulpus, the red fox, the, um, the American bison, which is bison bison. And one of my favourites, which is... That sounds like a great hipster band. Sorry. <laughs> bison, bison, bison. Anyway, no, another one of my favourites is um, the Western Lowland Gorilla, which is actually a subspecies. So its scientific name is Gorilla, Gorilla, Gorilla. Oh, I 
I like it. Yeah, that is pretty good. <laughs> but look, this um, this phenomenon. I found this also mentioned in a paper on linguistics. I happened to be reading the other day. Of course. Um, this was a paper on a phenomenon called contrastive focus reduplication, also sometimes shortened to contrastive reduplication, or CR if you want it for short. Now, this is a phenomenon where you um, – uh, what's an example? Well, there's a famous paper that described it that is a linguistic paper that is known as the salad salad paper because one of the examples they use was it's tuna salad, not salad salad. So when you repeat something to clarify its meaning, like, um, do you like him or do you like, like him like, like him sort of thing? So, and what it's doing there is that it's basically saying, by that you mean the kind of the, the main, the prototypical meaning, as they put, of, of the word. So it might be, do you want to drink or do you want to drink drink, you know? So, and this seems to be happening with these uh, scientific names as well. So the rattus rattus, the one that's actually called rattus rattus, is like the most ratty rat. That's the worst well-known rat. <laughs> the rattest of the rats. The rattest of the rats so is... the gorilla would be like the extreme Yeah, gorilla. it is the, the ultimate gorilla. Yeah, mm. yeah. So it's kind of the most famous animal. Like the red fox is the best known mm. fox. It's one of those vulpus vulpus. So yeah, that is something that is an interesting phenomenon that's in linguistics. It also seems to carry across into the naming of biological species. I just thought they'd throw that for a bit of trivia. A lot of the other ones are just named with um, with jokes, though. There's a lot of um, species that are named with interesting names because someone just liked thought of something clever. Oh yeah, can you can you tell us one? Well, there was um, a fungus that was described as being um, bright orange, full of holes, and resembles a sponge. So they called it Spongiforma squarepantsii. Oh. <laughs> there was a beetle. Um, this bloke uh, Ratcliffe who described it, he had. It was a very large genus of beetles, uh, scarab beetles, uh, cyclocephala, and he described many, many of them. So he called this one cyclocephala, not another one. <laughs> Let me see. There was uh, it mostly kind of Latin-sounding names. There was a genus Vini, that's a genus of birds, and someone named a bird the Vini vidivici. <laughs> Quite like that one. Some of them don't last, though. So there was a, a type of fly that was known as the Theria relativity. Uh, it seems to be reclassified, so it's no longer the Theria is his genus. It's a different genus now, so it's a bit of a shame. Like there was oh, one that was called there was one that was called Abracadabra, and it got reclassified as well, so it's something something else, Cadabra. Because um, not all taxonomists have a sense of humour. Well, sometimes you just it just moves. It's a re, it's just reclassified. Yeah, there's a lungless salamander that was the Oedipus complex, um, <laughs> but it's now being renamed the Oedipina complex for some reason. And finally, I'll leave you with an octopus that was uh, a very um, spectacular-looking octopus found in Indonesia um, by some Victorian scientists, and they called it the Wonderpus photogenicus. Oh, so, that's um, lovely. Yeah, it's, it's, sometimes these names can be nice, and I would encourage you to, to hug a Wonderpus photogenicus if you ever see one. All right, everyone. So we have Kathleen Garland with us today. Say hi, Kate. Hi, everyone. Kate's from the Weisbecker Lab at UQ, the University of Queensland in Brisbane. And she did some interesting work with um, bandicoots and on the evolution of their forelimbs. Do you want to give us a brief summary, Kate? Yeah, well, uh, my project mainly looked at investigating a question in evolutionary biology that's been floating around for about 40 years now. And it's kind of a weird question. It's where are the marsupial bats and dolphins? And uh, at the moment, it's unknown why placent- uh, marsupials rather haven't evolved these extremely diverse forelimbs that, like, and into structures like wings or flippers 
like placentals have, like dolphins or bats. Yep. And, um, yeah, so my study went into look into why this might happen and um, investigate a hypothesis on that's been around for that 40 years to suggest why this constraint is being held on marsupial forelimbs. And so this hypothesis is related to the marsupial's unique postnatal crawl, or, and that specifically is, if you know marsupials when they're born, they climb all the way up from the mother's urogenital sinus to the pouch using their forelimbs alone, and that's like a really steep vertical climb. Like you can imagine a little baby marsupial kangaroo or something, and they use the strength of their forelimbs alone to climb all the way up from the pouch, up into the pouch. And so the hypothesis is then thought that this demanding crawl at such a young age constrains the marsupial forelimb evolution mm -hmm. and a sort of makes their morphologies more adapted to climbing morphologies right. um, and limits their evolutionary diversity in adulthood. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Um, so yeah. you worked on bandicoots, correct? Yeah, yeah. So bandicoots, are, they're one of the only different marsupials in that they don't do that crazy crawl and instead the mum like positions herself on her back right. and the young fall down into the pouch using a swimming-like motion. So they're really interesting to look at in their limb morphology and their limb diversity because if that, if that hypothesis is correct about the postnatal crawl, then bandicoots shouldn't show that climbing morphology or be as constrained in their fall in morphology as other marsupial species. So you would expect a higher diversity in their um, in their forearm length and their forearm morphology, yeah? Yeah, and their forearm morphology. Like within a population, the level of diversity will be higher in bandicoot forelimbs than in any other marsupial forelimbs. So could we one day see bandicoot bats? <laughs> um, well, my study could like found evidence to suggest that yes that there's a high level of um, a higher level of diversity in bandicoot forelimbs than other marsupial forelimbs did you but, just sorry yeah. did you just go out there and like measure bandicoot legs well kind of in a way so the way to test for evolutionary diversity because of course you can't directly test the theory by you know getting a little marsupial and stopping it crawling and yeah. measuring that over so many years to see the evolution of it so instead you use an approach called morphological integration and that uses shape or the shape of the bones as a proxy for the evolutionary diversity of the bones right and so what you can then do under that idea is that you can take photos of the bones and that's what I did I traveled to museums across Australia and I took these really standardized pictures of the bones and I assessed the shape of the bones of each bandicoot specimen's limb bones to see how they were cha how they were changing in shape and if they were very different in shape from other marsupials that had previously been tested um, using the same approach. Right, so this was mostly done, or was it completely done using museum records and museum specimens? Yeah, yeah, completely by museums and all the museums across Australia, they really, really helped my project and were a really great asset doing that and it's something most people don't know about museums is that at the front of the museums you, you know that's probably one third of the collection and behind the scenes that's where the real real museum is and there's just so much information there and yeah just a wealth of knowledge that's really great for scientists right nice one Kate, um, is there any other animal that um has the same sort of diversity in their forelimbs or? Well, in the marsupials, there's one other and it's the marsupial mole and it's thought that because it does not crawl as well that it also has this ability to have more diverse forelimbs and if you know marsupial moles, they sort of have, mm. they live, spend most of their life underground and have these crazy adapted forelimbs that are um, really specialised for digging and burrowing and these two sort of claws at the front. And so, yeah, they're another example of 
perhaps like the bandicoots having diverse forelimbs compared to other marsupials. Right, so using it for a different function, so it's not so much about climbing up to the pouch of the mother, but rather having some ability to dig and being able to... Yeah, exactly. So it's the idea is that by not performing the postnatal crawl, the marsupial mole and maybe even the bandicoots were allowed to um, show a higher Mm -hmm. level of evolutionary diversity and adapt functions like burrowing. And and in the bandicoots' case, you do see burrowing or digging um, in some of them. So maybe that's why. But my study can't directly test that. It can only only suggest. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Is this kind of a study going to suggest a different divide on the evolutionary tree or anything like that? Like, would it be able to link into where marsupials or how marsupials are grouped or and how they are related to one another and perhaps other mammals? Yeah, maybe it could be It could be used and it would be very useful. It's still debated and still questioned about if the postnatal crawl or the crawl from the pouch into the pouch is um, a derived characteristic in marsupials and at the moment, it's thought that marsupials, that it's, an, that it's a derived state compared to that of placentals. But, and any, any species within the marsupials that don't show a crawl, that it's a reversion back to an ancestral state mm. when marsupials didn't crawl. Right. So it would you know, suggest that it might be the case, but my study didn't really do phylogenetic analysis. To, um, and you have to do, in order to do that sort of study, you have to look over a suite of um, species to... Yeah, um, of course. really get a grasp of what's going on there. Yeah, nice. Interesting, Kate. Thanks for um, talking to us about that. Do you think there's anything, well, from your experience, like some complications that came up out of your work or maybe the museum records weren't so so intact at times or maybe there's holes in the, in the uh, information from the museum records or anything like that? Yeah, well, museums, are, they're not perfect. And especially when you're trying to get, you know, you're not going out and getting the data yourself. So there'll always be a bit of holes in records and, you won't know exactly if it's male or female sometimes, you don't right. know. You can, you can tell from skull morphology sometimes and, and aging the specimen can be hard and, and sometimes getting a complete bandicoot specimen was really difficult because, <laughs> you know, you're not going to find all the limb bones sometimes. Right. So, yeah, there's, it's def- that was definitely a major difficulty, but the museums were great and the collections are amazing. So, if anything, um, it would be, you know, just keeping that going and keeping that great asset that we have um, in museum information to keep it going. Lovely. Well, thanks, Kate. Thanks for telling us all about bandicoots and their forelimbs. That's all right. Um, I'll talk to you later. Yeah, talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Okay, well, today I'm delving into the somewhat bloodthirsty world of the carnivorous pitcher plant. So make sure you keep your wits about you. Otherwise, you might get digested as well. Wow. Are they, are they, could they be in here now while we're talking? I mean, is they, are they coming to get us? No, but have you ever read Day of the Triffids? Yes. Yeah, it was scary, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Carnivorous plants are terrifying. Um, hmm. The pitcher plant, if you don't know, it has um, these modified leaves that look a little bit like a jug or a pitcher. Hence mm-hmm. the name pitcher plant. Oh, so not picture like picture. No, 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 P-I-T-C-H-E-R, mm. pitcher. And they sort of have this bit on the top that looks a little bit like a lid. Um, and then at the bottom of the pictures, like inside, is this cocktail of enzymes and bacteria that kill, digest unsuspecting insects that fall inside the plant and meet their watery doom. Wow. Mm. Is it just insects or can they eat bigger things? 
as or far we'll as I know, digest bigger things. As far as I know, just insects. But as I will tell you, they have some very interesting relationships with all types of animals. I think they'd eat just whatever falls in, wouldn't they? Really, I mean, slow, painful death. Slow, painful mm. death. Yeah. 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 Now, the first time I saw a pitcher plant was in Borneo. I was struggling up a mountain and um, it was tropical weather, so I was struggling even more. And there were these amazing little pitcher plants that just look quite innocuous. So they are found in Asia, but they also populate South America as well. And as you know, in the tropics, the soil can be quite low in nutrients, in nitrogens and phosphates. So that's why the pitcher plant has gotten creative with ah. how it accesses its nutrition. Right. Yeah. A little too creative. For A little liking. too creative, hence the carnivorousness. Mm. So you, the fact that you're here with us today implies that you escaped from your... I escaped, but I had to run. Oh. I had to run. <laughs> Unlike the Triffids, they haven't, um, they haven't become so motile. motile. Okay. Mobile? Yeah. Ambulatory? Motile? Mm. Hmm. <laughs> um, so like I was saying, pitcher plants... They form these amazing symbiotic relationships yep. with other animals. So in Borneo, for instance, there's an ant that lives inside the pitcher plant and it lives inside these very special tendrils at the base of each of the pitchers. The plant gives the ant food in the form of nectar mm. um, that it secretes on the top of, like if you imagine the jug, like on the rim of the jug. And in return... The ants are very hospitable, they're excellent housemates, and um, they help in a number of ways. They clean up after themselves, they keep the mouth of the jug or the pitcher clean and slippery enough for other lesser insects to fall in. Mm -hmm. They are like alarm systems, so they attack weevils that are going to hurt the plant and munch on the plant. Yep. They also put out the garbage like any good housemate. (laughs) They remove things from the pitcher that might otherwise rot. How did they not die in the process? How did they not get ingested or digested? Well, they live in the in the, oh, in in the, the rim outside of the pitcher oh. plant in these little tendril bits. Oh, right. And so right. they don't actually go inside the digestive part. I see. Yeah, okay. yeah. So they, they know to stay away from the digestive another dangerous juices. bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. There's like a special warning just almost, for them. Maybe it's less of them being really nice and it's more of like Stockholm Syndrome and they're just being good to their captors. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> so many of these symbiotic relationships are just Stockholm Syndrome, aren't they? <laughs> um, and then they also provide food, so their droppings then refertilize the plant. Right. Okay. Yeah. So this is a truly symbiotic relationship. Each of the parties benefit, and when scientists look at the plant with these ants and compare it to plants that don't have access to these ants, they find that the plants uh, with the ants produce more and larger leaves, mm. um, which are richer in nutrients. Mm. The plants with the ants also had... <laughs> Dr. Yes, Seuss. The plants <laughs> with the ants had more pitches, so there were more jugs on each plant. Right. And they had more insects or like a massive insects or, you know. Okay, they were catching more stuff. They were catching more stuff, exactly. Yep. And the plants with no ants. No ant plants. No ant plants. They analysed those leaves and it turns out that they had like nutrient deprivation. So they were not going well right. without the ants. Plants with no ants, no good. No nutrient hey, ants. No nutrient. plants with no ants just plus? <laughs> 
That's very good, Venetia. <laughs> Thanks. Um, now, in a type of biological one-upmanship, mm-hmm. um, another type of carnivorous pitcher plant, this one also from Borneo, has sort of developed or evolved this way of communicating. I use that term loosely because it's not our traditional way of communicating or the traditional means we see as communicating with a type of bat. What? Yeah. So we all know that bats emit sound to navigate. Mm -hmm. That's echolocation. Yeah, so some bats emit sound in the ultrasonic frequency. They send out a sound, it bounces off an object and returns back to their ears and they can create an image of the world around them using the sound that's come back at them. Now, these pitcher plants have evolved a really specific structure in their pitcher that reflects the ultrasonic calls back to the bat with great precision. So when the bat receives the sound back, the bat knows what species of pitcher plant it is and exactly where it is. Now, at this point, you might be asking, what's in it for the bat? Exactly. What's the bat doing with the information? Yeah, what's the bat doing with the information? What's in it for the pitcher plant? They're just telling each other where they are, but what's next? So for the bat... These pitcher plants are perfect for roosting during the day, so for hanging out during the day. Mm. Well, they the, hang out inside the pitcher plants? Inside the pitcher plants. So how do they not get eaten? The water level, and the water's full of all those enzymes and stuff, yeah. it's low enough to fit two bats in it perfectly and not get their little feet wet. Okay. Yeah. The plants are also free of parasites. And like I said, there's room enough for two so a bat can bring his friend or her friend. Amazing. And inside the pitcher plant, it's like a microclimate. Mm-hmm. So you're not... Rained on. You're not rained on. Yep. You're not, you know, you're, warm, you're away from the temperature. elements. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, but how's the plant? So the pitcher plant, on the other hand, so can you guess what they're getting out of the relationship? Poo, I'm guessing. That's right. Yuck. The magic <laughs> of bat droppings, guano. This stuff's like... Liquid gold. Yeah, for, for plants. They love it. For plants, yeah. The pitcher plant is welcoming the bat because they leave their high nitrogen content poop while they are inside. So this pitcher plant slash bat symbiotic relationship. The bat loo. The bat loo. Oh, dear. <laughs> um, it's been known for a little while, but exactly how the bats found the plants to roost in has been a bit of a breakthrough for researchers recently. So researchers thought it might have something to do with echolocation rather than sight Mm -hmm. or smell, given that bats echolocate. Um, So they engineered a robotic bat's head that emits and records ultrasound. And they found that the pitcher plant had a really strong echo reflection, much stronger than any other plants in the forest. And that the sound profile it was giving back was different to the other pitcher plants as well. So I was thinking about this, and it's sort of like the equivalent of you looking at a forest and just seeing green until your eyes are drawn to something different, like the colour yellow. Mm -hmm. It stands out from the rest of the forest, which is super convenient because the forest is very crowded. And when you get to this yellow thing, you find it's this beautiful bungalow, Hmm. you being the bat. And then you can just hang out and chill with a friend. And the only thing you need to do in return is leave your waste. How good is that? Pretty good. Win-win. Win-win. So that's how I imagine a bat must feel every time it echolocates a pitcher plant. All right, that's it for another episode of Lost in Science, where we have learned all about, well, bandicoots and the way they crawl. Yeah. 
Uh, we have learned about bats, the way they hang out in pitcher plants. And we've learned about all those animals that have double names like Rattus Rattus and Bidianus Bidianus. Lost in Science. It is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network for generous support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We'd love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or you can find us on Twitter where I think we are at Lost in Science 1. If you live in Melbourne, in on the 18th of August, we are having a trivia night. So you can find the details of that on our website and on our Facebook page. So come on down and challenge your brain cells with our excellent scientific questions. Apart from that, you can listen to us on the radio, of course, when once again, this time next week, Manisha, Claire, Chris and Stu will get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.